everyone and welcome to another edition of Naked and Inside Out. It's Cynthia and Janine here. This month we're talking with Philippe Bohorquez. Um, so a little background information. Um, Philippe is a little bit of a mystery to us. I mean, we did have a little like sit down powwow beforehand um, with a little bit of Prosecco and snacks because that's how we do things. Um, you know, like I usually spend a little bit more time researching someone before the interview just so I have a little bit more questions. Um, to ask. Um, however, uh, Philippe was introduced to us through Andy at a Gay Tech Meetup, and all I heard was that Philippe had this amazing story, or many a stories, many a lives, um, and we just had to talk to him. Yes. Um, so here we are. Um, I guess with that said, you know, I'm going to leave it up to the storyteller to share his insights, um, and I do want to set. Um, a preface before we turn it over to Philippe. So on LinkedIn, um, he does have this amazing quote where he states from the infamous Bill Nye, who doesn't like Bill Nye, I love Bill Nye, <laughs> amazing, um, which I think is a really great intro um, that kind of encompasses uh, Philippe. So it says, everyone you will ever meet knows something, knows something you don't. Interacting with people in this way allows you to truly experience the world free from constraints of hidebound judgment values. This opens up entirely new possibilities for growth and understanding. Wow. <laughs> like, I feel like a big, like, deep, like, breath, air out. So with that, we're going to turn it over to Philippe. Thank you yes, for, for coming on coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, Bill Nye is a, an inspiration to me, you know. He's someone who has kind of a, you know, bachelor's degree in science and a master's degree, but he has no less than four honorary PhDs because he decided to see the world in a different way and go towards those dreams. And he's re kind of enlivened the imaginations of a whole culture of people. Uh, and I think that's something to be respected. Um, you know, uh, meeting Andy uh, four years ago and in the tech world looking for my own community I think as often queer people do um, he was very welcoming and he's introduced me to a, a fair amount of great people uh, you ladies are also very great to me uh, thank you so much for having me <laughs> thank you um, I'm not quite sure where to start I've lived many lives and had many a story but since we're talking about you know the tech world and how we met maybe I'll talk about my time here in New York City uh, I moved to New York from Salt Lake City four years ago. Uh, there I was an outdoor rock climbing guide uh, on accident and I also worked at a non-profit, um, not-for-profit uh, online university called Western Governors University. Pretty much doing everything within my power not to achieve anything. Um, <laughs> you know, I decided to move to New York City just, uh, I've lived in maybe five or six different states and it was a whim and I, I moved here. And it's interesting how you look at a new city, um, I always have a practice. I go to a coffee shop, I see if I like the people, I walk in a mile in every direction from my apartment. Well, a mile in every direction in New York City is uh, about a thousand miles in someone else's story. Uh, and I found myself interweaving into a great many people's stories in the city. Uh, and I loved it. Um, when I first moved here, I was considering selling plasma to pay my rent. That's how poor I was. Whoa. Four years later, I'm an engineer who just stopped working for Samsung for another company um, without any other credentials or degrees. And it just shows how great the city can be if you have a will or a passion or desire. Uh, and so this is one of the few cities I've lived in that you can like see the potential in the air. You can yeah. see every single day. If you choose to hone in, you can have anything you want. It's yeah. about that power and that passion and being 
being able to spot those opportunities. Um, so, you know, day by day, uh, I firmly believe if one person believes something of you that almost anyone else will. So I fashioned myself as a consultant. Uh, I convinced nice. one person I could actually go in and fix their computers. I could go in and set up networks. Uh, from there, I did a year just being a consultant working in the tech industry. Then I started getting involved in um, kind of modern startups. I worked for Boxy, which was a precursor to you know Apple TV and a lot of other ways we uh, consume data. Um, from there, I worked for a startup company, which I think a lot of people are becoming familiar with, Canary. Um, and at Canary, I was the head of customer experience. I'd never done anything like that in my life. I kind of talked my way into the position. Um, my mentor, Andrew, uh, Andrew Kippen, he used to be the uh, VP of marketing for Boxy and said, I've got this project for you. I think you'd be really good at it. And I said, whoa, 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 buddy. Like, this is like five years in my future. He said, don't sweat it. You got this. <laughs> so, you know, I, here I am, employee number 13 uh, of this company, and I have to go in and create something that's never been seen before. Expectations, wireframing of services, creating a culture um, that can be spun around this product that hadn't even been created yet. Yeah. Uh, and it was probably the most challenging thing I'd ever done in my life. But through it, I realized what it meant to communicate and how important that is in our in our own society and especially New York City culture. Um, so that's kind of like what brought me to this kind of history, this point in history. Um, from Canary, I stopped working there and worked at Samsung, which is one of the you know leading uh, technology manufacturers in the world, which was a good experience in doing a lot to get nothing done. And <laughs> I realized that giant corporations were probably not for me. Um, so now I find myself working at a company called First Dibs and we sell kind of like an online marketplace, um, nice objects to kind of fabulously wealthy people, I would say, uh, but mostly design houses and people that want to do interior design. Um, but through all of that, working with all these companies, I was amazed at how many queer people were actually in the industry itself. Um, and so I started going to meetups. I joined an LGBT rock climbing group, Crux, um, which was just fantastic. And I think because of that, I have actually had a very positive experience in the city where some people can be kind of chewed up and spit out in, in, yeah. in the culture. Um, and that's kind, of, that's kind of my story, my background story here. Um, my partner Evan likes to call me a rake on occasion because I'll go into some place, sort of pretend like I know what I'm doing, and then sort of like take over that thing. Um, <laughs> and it started in a really random journey. Um, I was in the ninth grade in high school in San Jose, California. And I dropped out of high school to do a middle college program. So I didn't have, you know, any idea what I was doing. I just knew that I didn't go to school more than I did. And so it probably wasn't the right place for me. So I took a year of full college credits and full high school credits. And then from there, without telling my mother, I applied to uh, for a university in Massachusetts when I was 14 and a half. Um, I got, wow. <laughs> uh, I applied to MIT and Simons Rock College of Bard. I got accepted to both of them, but Simons Rock gave me a full scholarship. So I had wow. three months to get to this college. Uh, and I finally decided to tell my mother uh, and I said, Hey mom, you know, I got this really great opportunity. Uh, it's going to take me across the country, literally to Massachusetts. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't tell you before, but I didn't want to worry you. And she freaked out for five minutes. <laughs> you know, what were you thinking? How could you do this? Oh my God, you never think things through. And then clearing, you know, her breath. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, she said, that being said, I'm really proud of you. Let's figure out how to get it done. And that started awesome. my journey to being sort of someone who always just like a train breezes through obstacles and finds new ways to do weird things. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. And how old were you at this point? God, when I went to Simon's Rock, I was 15 and a half. Wow. So how was that? Like, I mean, I'm assuming like you were probably one of the youngest people there. So the interesting thing yeah. about Simon's Rock, it's a four-year four university made for average entering age of 15-year-old students. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so there were people your age as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the time, I think Mia Farrow taught modern dance there and her son Seamus went to school there. Wow. Um, the Coen brothers um, graduated from there. Um, I'll... Allison Beshto, she was from there as well. She went to these early colleges. So we had this history of really kind of interesting people coming from it. Um, and it, at the time, it was ranked number the number six university in the country. This was in 1996 or 97. Yeah. Showing my age here. But, uh, <laughs> but it, was, it, was a, it was a trip, you know. Um, the community was great. It was my first experience, I think, even though I grew up in California, amongst a lot of gay people, this was like the gayest college I had ever gone to. Ever <laughs> really? Yes. Um, one of my friends there, he referred to himself as Juicy Fruit and <laughs> wore Spice Girl moon boots. You know, he was four foot nothing of a guy, uh, but just all fire. And I loved it. Um, I found myself doing odds and ends things. Um, being a kid from California, you grow up in this culture where music and dance is kind of alive there. And I used to go to these underground raves at, like in San Francisco and warehouse parties. So naturally I get to the sleepy town of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Uh, small enough to call the town people townies. Uh, and I was like, what am I going to do with myself? Uh, so I kind of fashioned myself as a club promoter and took trains every weekend to uh, New York at the time and promoted at the limelight at the last few years that it get was open. Get out of here. It was the only way I could get in without having an ID because I was very obviously not of age. I'm convinced we crossed paths because I used to sneak into the city and go to limelight at a very young age as well. <laughs> like, no wonder for both of us that they're closed down. Yeah. Um, you know, and so growing up, I had a sister who was just amazing. She's brilliant. Um, she was a really good dancer. She could dance like Janet Jackson. And when I tried to dance, you know, it was like, it was like an epileptic trying to hit a beat. And so she'd make fun of me, but I think it spurred me on to new heights. And, and I started learning how to do pop and locking and do like bits of, um, kind of like at the time urban street dance, you know, and I did like some capoeira. I did some interesting things. So then I started doing performances in these clubs uh, while still going to school. <laughs> Um, Get out of here. So you were in school and then commuting to New York City on the weekends and like performing to pop, in these drop clubs. And yeah, exactly. awesome. pop and lock yeah. Oh my god. Um, you know, now like every time I do it my bones creak, but back then it felt like a, you know, it was like an accomplishment for a kid who couldn't even clap in time, you know. Yeah. Um so yeah, lots of you know, I think no matter where you're at in life, you always have to fulfill some sort of like spiritual need. And for me it was to connect with things beyond the realm in which I was in. And I think everyday life, even in New York City, I do the same. Um, I'm, we're all Im immersed in our lives. We have friends, we have work, we have our own hangups and the way that we perceive the world. But I always try my best to understand the mind-body-spirit connection. Like, those things help th those communities, but there's always more we could be reaching for. And I always try to find something else, a bit of chaos to throw into it as a spin to say, hey, my life could be something more. There's vectors out of this path. Should I choose it? Yeah. Um, I've always had many vectors and I've always chose them all. So yeah, <laughs> pros and cons. But I find myself, you know, almost 34 in New York City, living a fantastic life because of the decisions. Um, but that was my early history. Uh <laughs> Do you find yourself... Um 
you know, like going outside your comfort box, like day to day. I think like that... to reach all these like new levels, or is it something that you know, like as you're getting your hands and in involvement in all these different things? I mean, like your your outlook on life is fantastic. You're like, I could do that, no problem. You know, like <laughs> you're just like, okay, let me try it. Okay, yeah, I'm awesome at it. I mean, is there any um, any of these instances? I mean, besides, like, probably the dancing, you're like, oh, my God, I don't know how to dance, like, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn it. I mean, was there other instances like that? Or is it something you don't really jump into unless you know you can be successful at it, I guess? I think it's part of having a growth mindset where you realize that your failures are successes. And if you haven't failed, you haven't tried hard enough. Yeah. And I think that's really the important thing to to learn from it. I think we live in a life of comfort. We can choose to take risks or not, but usually in those risks, they're like almost government, like government sanctioned risks. We know that this is risky behavior. You can do something in the confines of what is acceptable. It's acculturation to what we know, but parts of the seeds of acculturation is to allow people to understand the society and also give them the tools to affect a change so that society doesn't become stagnant and crumble. And I think that people who set themselves up for failure are people who set themselves up for success. Um, it's mm -hmm. not that everything that I do that I will fail, but I know that if I have tried my hardest and I failed, that I learned something from it. And that's powerful, you know? I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, it's a, I think that one of the things is I, I don't think, I don't think I have a tolerance for like risk aversion. I think I just like, I, I think that there's no other choice. Um, and so I'm lucky. I think that I was born without that fear center in my brain about trying new things. Yeah. I'm fearful about a great many things. Death by paper cut, running over a bag of kittens, weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I never know, you know? <laughs> but like not about taking risks. And my early, uh, you know, history in school and at the limelight and, you know, so many more stories after that shows that. But I'm lucky because I don't realize when I have failed, I'm like... Oh, wow, that did not go as I had planned. Okay, so now I'm going to try to plan a little bit. I'm going to look at the world. I'm going to see how someone else saw it and what they would take from the experience. And I think perspective is the key to understanding life itself. Mm -hmm. And when we, like Bill Nye said, you know, everyone has something to teach you something else. Um, I got that one wrong. Uh, there, there's an opportunity to learn from everyone, basically. Yeah. And in my life, I've tried my hardest to understand perspective because I know that I make so many assumptions based on my privilege, based on the world that I've lived in, that it can't be the whole truth. And life is a series of getting together and looking at people's truths and saying, is this the agreed upon truth? What is the big T? What is the little T of this truth? How do we define it? What can we make of those things? And it's only with the collective shared memory of that history that we go forward and actually make a good choice or become more than we can be. Um, so yeah, so I make a lot of mistakes, uh, but I do a lot of fantastic things. Uh, and I never know that I'm making the mistakes because I'm having so much fun, fun doing, doing it. it. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. So you're, like, cause I mean, most people that fail at something, it's like they have a nervous breakdown and they just can't push themselves or prop themselves back up to keep going. And you, it's almost like you're making the mistakes. You're not even knowing it because you're like instantly learning and growing like at the same time. Or like, at, while it's all happening, it's happening. It's part of the process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. you allow for it. I think maybe it's our culture where our parents think kids should be perfect, and or we assume our parents think that based on what they say. Yeah. Society, movies, you know, we have uh, 
an entire mythology surrounding how we should be as people, adults, how we grow up. It's not the truth of it. It is a mythology for a reason. It's it's held up to be something you can never attain. That's yeah. the point of myth. <laughs> uh, but we never think about it. And I had parents who failed all the time, but were really wonderful people. Um, with all of their failures, with all the things they maybe could have done better, the one thing they taught me was that you can do anything in your life you choose to. My father went to college, talked his way into Berkeley at the age of 45 to get a master's in clinical addiction medicine. Uh, yeah, he was uh, one of the original drug and AIDS counselors of the first wave of the AIDS epidemic. He started the needle exchange in San Francisco. He's a great oh, wow, man, wow. you know, and from there he started writing articles for Rolling Stone about addiction and things like that. Uh, my mother was a published poet. Uh, she worked, in, you know, she worked like a, like a like a wage labor generally and like medical billing and stuff but she actually was a psychic uh for the police department finding missing children really? which is like a trip in itself uh, that oh is a story God. that is a story to unpack but it's not my story to tell i don't think but it did give me insight that the world is full of perspectives and each of us has gifts and those gifts should be given freely with our energy and our time into other people you know yeah that's great Oh my god, this is so <laughs> I have to pick Jimmy's jaw up off the floor. <laughs> oh my god, that's so much amazingness and like... Did your mind just explode? Yeah, it did. I think Janine's brain is all over the walls right now. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin asking my questions. Should we continue the story? Yeah. So with that said, now that I'm like... My brain has com like compacted all this information. Um, wh where are you now? Like, what are you up to these days? To tell my story about now, I'll have to regress a bit back before the last story of Summons Rock. But currently, I find myself um, on the board of a foundation called the Lifeboat Foundation, whose job is to think about ways in which technology won't destroy us. So people like Elon Musk and um, you know the founders of Google donate money to this nonprofit organization and they have things like the AI shield, the bio, um, the bioengineering shield, and they think about ways technology can go wrong and figure out ways in which to solve for it. Looking at that information, I thought, wow, it's interesting that the narrative that we have about our future is one of mutually assured destruction. We have no narrative about how we as human beings become more human, how technology may help us get there, and how we bridge the divides of those disparate communities. And so currently I'm working on some things that tells a different side of the story. I firmly believe that if you don't say that something in the future is possible, it won't be. And the future that we're all holding up as a candlelight to um, what, what can happen is one of destruction, of pain, of a world kind of gone mad. And that's not the world I want to live in. So I think it's up to the dreamers and the thinkers and the tinkers to build a future that we can say can happen. Uh, to talk about this, I've got to go back to the Bay Area. Growing up in the Bay Area was a trip. <laughs> <laughs> this is the beginning of the very first um, tech bubble. You know, my best friend's parents created all the things we love and, and appreciate now. The original internet, VoIP uh, phone systems to allow us to talk, you know, over networks for free, nanotechnology. Um, and so I grew up around people who thought that the world was a playground for ideas and that everything that they could think about or do could benefit mankind. And I grew up in this very sweet spot of the 90s uh, that said that we can really have any future we desire. Um, 
my best friend, Amber, her father, Keith Henson, was something of a mentor to me. He kind of pioneered the idea of cryogenic free uh, freezing as a way of actually doing it. He started something called the L5 Society, which later on became the Space Exploration Society. And as we all know now, Bill Nye just launched something, a suborbital, uh, not suborbital, um, as a, he, he launched a rocket into space that is basically this giant kite that harnesses power from the Space uh, Exploration Society, really? which is my best friend's dad helped to invent these things. Um, oh, wow. And I was very a uh, precocious kid, let's call it that. And he was very, he was amazing with computers. So he would program his own word processors to do the things. And back then in the 90s, you probably had to. Yeah. Um, and growing up in the Bay Area, I was the first person to have AOL like in the country um, because of where we were in San Jose, Silicon Valley. And he saw that I was bored and interested. And so from the age of 10 or 11, he gave me advice on computer systems and coding and his first wife was a woman named Carol Menial, and she wrote a book called The Guide to Mostly Harmless Hacking. Of course, as an 11-year-old kid, <laughs> I was in, like thralled with the idea, well, you know, it implied that you could cause harm. It implied that something was dangerous. All of a sudden, I was let out of my sandbox to say, whoa, <laughs> the world, you know, has like causality. I could do this thing and something else can be affected. I now understand a bit more my friend's parents. So night after night after night, I would take apart electronics, put them back together, I would kind of code things, I would use a war dialer, which was a fancy way of saying you took your telephone, you put it on a receiver, it called random sequences of numbers till they got that very annoying 90s noise as a modem, and it would let you log in as a prompt. So I, lo I looked at the psychology of password systems, I looked at you know, what? like ten, this is you at ten years old, ten or eleven. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> I looked at like you know network topologies. I got I studied manuals that were written by the NSA by governments that you could find in like used bookstores because it was a Silicon Valley, you know. Uh, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about self reliance and about the <laughs> obsession of of being elevated out of your realm of consciousness. Because for <laughs> me, it was it was like a whole world that opened up. Yeah. I realized that the future belonged to people who could create it and that computers were such a powerful tool that everyone in the future must surely be connected to them. Yeah. And, you know, it came out uh, to be a truth. We're yeah. all connected to our phones. You know, we're using a very sophisticated system in which to do this podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that the very first um, rocket to the moon had less memory in it than an iPhone. Oh my God. Uh, and that we put humans in that's that thing crazy. to shoot to the moon, and that's where we, you know, where we dreamed of. Yeah. Um, and so, coming into contact with those ideas, these people who thought so far into the future that they had to be called futurists, uh, and now we're here, we're in that futurist future, uh, and I find myself in the Lifeboat Foundation trying to think as they would have, twenty years in the future from now. Um, and that hope that I can tell a story that people will believe and that we can build towards that future, that future of understanding, of being freed up from the constraints of fear, of pain, of frustration, so that we can become human. I think that a lot of the working world don't have time to be human. A lot of the world works at, from an early age onwards and doesn't have a childhood, doesn't get yeah. to dream impossible dreams. That's the things that make us human. Um, and yeah, I hope by working with the Lifeboat Foundation that I can help bring those dreamers back. Um, so the first book I'm working on is called Surviving the Singularity. And if you don't know what the singularity is, uh, it was a 
term that was coined by Werner Vinge, uh, and it was about a, a coming age of technology that was so far in advance of what humans can understand that we could not possibly think beyond that time. For uh, many people living now, they think artificial intelligence is will be that um, future, you know. It's interesting that it's no small coincidence every time we have a bill in Congress that talks about immigration, we see a lot of movies in the theater about aliens invading Earth. Um, it's about our fear of otherness. And we look at artificial, um, artificial intelligence and we think, well, like this could be something that could destroy us. And it's true. Humans can destroy each other as well. Mm -hmm. The real fear is that we don't, we fear our, ourselves and we haven't figured out the lessons we need to survive ourselves. So to create something that is so much like us worries yeah. us. But I believe that if we think about those hard problems, about humanity, about we, what we could be and become, that all the time that we've been searching for life outside the bounds of this sphere, we could find it, you know, right there in our labs. We can create something in our own image, understand our own divinity, our humanity, and finally come in contact with consciousness that is other, uh, and finally explore what it means to be human through someone else's eyes. And I think that's beautiful. I yeah. love it. I have chills. <laughs> <laughs> the, there's so much there, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's my hope. So I, uh, describing the singularity, the first one is going to be sort of a kitschy how to survive a zombie apocalypse, but the singularity. And I'm hoping to write a second and third book. The second one is just about the singularity and my philosophy and others that are coming forward about creating a world in which humans can be humans. Um, and the third one being about transhumanism, the idea that humans are modifying ourselves to become something greater. My father has a bionic leg. Like, he lost it because of diabetes, but his leg is way more kick-ass than his real leg. So, wow. at what point do we cease being human? What does a human, what does it mean to be human in the first place? What is the human condition? Um, and those are questions we've asked for so long, but we're getting to a point in time where we're forced to answer them. And that's scary, because we've decided to look away for so long. So, that's kind of a full circle Bay Area to now, and why I'm interested in what I do, but you know, I do my normal job. Um, I'm a quality assurance engineer. Kind of, I click on things. I say, looks that looks bad or not. Uh, but on the side, I dream about a world that can be a place of beauty and sustainability and about adventuring beyond the spheres of knowledge that we know. Uh, and that's what makes me me, you know? It's a trip. I love that. Will you run for office? Or <laughs> office? I have a very colorful background. There's other <laughs> stories I'm not telling you. <laughs> I would not. Uh, you wouldn't pass. I would the, not. There would no. be lots of like. There would have to be a cultural revolution before <laughs> I was actually. Well, I'd vote for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, I'm curious about your interests as a child, and even now, and sort of how they've shaped your path, like. Because it seems like you can kind of like do many things and hop to one sort of profession to the next and you it, you take it as a challenge and you succeed, right? But I guess for me, like, was there, I mean, because I know when I was 10 years old, I probably, my brain would never even think to do those things, right? Like, so no, I definitely were not. No. <laughs> but it's so interesting to me, right? Like, I guess just like, what were the things that kind of interested you then and maybe now that have sort of shaped you? Or is it just being around these different people? Like I said, I think I grew up in a sweet spot uh, of a bit of 90s California lore, you know. Um, but on top of that, I think that my parents always spoke to me as if I was an, a little adult, uh, you know. I was a confidant to them. I knew about their lives and their struggles. Um, and so from a very early age, I was aware of what being an adult could be. And I think that maybe 
subconsciously, I looked for flights of fancy. I decided to be immersed in the world of building to take apart things. I think one of the earliest memories I have is taking apart a toaster and <laughs> also telling my mom, no, mommy, this is how you use the microwave, you know, and like getting up on a stool and pressing it and showing her. Um, I've always been interested in how things work, but no less humanity, people, relationships. How do you, how do you look at someone and say, I love you because I understand you? You know, there's a really great um, book, which I think a lot of people know, Ender's Game. Uh, in Ender's Game, it's about this little boy who goes into space and they train him to be a tool of the military to destroy an alien race without ever telling him he's being trained for it. And his greatest gift was that he could love someone by understanding them. And in that moment, he knew how to destroy them, which is the most heartbreaking thing, yeah. right? That love is destruction occasionally. But when you take a step away from there, the next book is The Speaker for the Dead, where he tells the story of someone, of all, and the first is attrition to the race he killed. Uh, and it's about the idea of giftedness, which I believe all humanity is gifted, and about how we look at the stories between pain and trial, between triumph and beauty. And it's about interweaving our past between them all. Um, and to say that I feel pain, because you feel pain, your pain is mine. Uh, I understand you and I love you and I don't want to destroy you because of it. I want to become more with you. Um, and I think that's maybe always been something, I mean, so, something I probably couldn't articulate to this moment. I sometimes don't think before I speak, but um, I think as a kid, I was trying to always understand, you know. Um, I think when I was 11, I told my mother that I'd fallen in love with a person, not a gender. And my mother's response was, okay. <laughs> you know <what> I'm <laughs> but we lived in the Bay Area. It was very queer friendly. And it didn't really matter. And I think that also I identify as a gay man now, but I've been in love, intensely in love, uh, three different times. One was a woman and two were with men. And so, but I define myself as a gay man because I know it feels right to me. But love is interesting. It can mm -hmm. be so variant. It can, there's so many experiences you can have. And I think I learned that between seeing people's struggles, become, coming out or not, even living their lives as like heteronormatively as they could, the expectations. Um, and I don't think that I ever was had any expectations placed on me except that I can do anything and that I was expected to do everything, uh, <laughs> which is its own set of constraints, you know? Yeah. When I left school um, after three and a half years at Simon's Rock, I felt guilty for a great many years by never completing it, not following some sort of sense of potential. But it's interesting because had I completed it, had I joined a workforce at 18, would I have been the man I am today? Would I have still dreamed the dreams that had engaged me as a child? And, you know, it's human nature to look at our history and our path and say, did I do right? Was it the right thing to do? Um, we may look at it more towards the ends of our lives, but we may quietly ask ourselves in the middle of it. And the answer always is, you lived. So yes, you did. Uh, and that is kind of beautiful. Um, so yeah, it's about that history. It's about looking at people and systems, which computer science is great. Um, and towards that end, I'm currently teaching myself, um, you know, Python and C++ to learn how to create neural networks, to create artificial intelligence myself, because I want to be a dreamer who's a maker, and I want to say what's possible when you've been given nothing to gain everything. Uh, and the future belongs to all of us if we choose to step up and have a part in it. I love that. <laughs> it's amazing to me, too, at such a young age, you knew that you, like, you love a person, not a gender. Yeah. Because to me, I mean, it's just incredible, because... For me, it took me a very long time, probably my early 20s, to realize, like, 
this isn't about whether they're male or female or whatever. It, it was just like, I like this person for who they are. And it, it's just incredible for someone to know at such a young age and just like to be in tune with yourself. It was, I don't, I often don't think before I speak, which used to get me in trouble, but now I don't think twice about it. So people take you and the nature you give them uh, yeah. that, that expression. Yeah. So I'm an adult and I, you know, you know, like they say, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, I don't give F's about, you know, I have yeah. no F's to give, uh, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, but, you know, growing up, I'll be 34 this year. So growing up during where, you know, LGBT rights were starting to come into main focus. And I was in California. People were marching. People were saying, this is not my president at the time, saying, don't us, don't tell is a lie. People live and die by the sword to save this country. Uh, but they have to live in shadow. Uh, to do something so brave and honorable at the time, you know, although uh, I getting into the conversation about war and and that is another story that's another podcast and i'm not a big, <laughs> not the biggest fan of it but if you choose to live that life to also be <clears throat> called a hero but a failure or someone who shouldn't be celebrated by society because of who you are i was very aware early on that there was a norm uh, a normalcy about being gay and what you had to sacrifice uh to live in the world and to be something that was celebrated you know we had this like implicit understanding as people growing up queer during that time that you could be anything you wanted but in a public sphere you could be anything they wanted yeah. and uh it's about spin it's about how we say our heroes are and again it's mythology mm -hmm. uh but i believe reclaiming that we are currently you know you see a big push towards rights a big push towards inclusivity with that inclusivity and the homogenization of like the queer nation you're seeing lots of people coming forward and saying i don't fit that bill I appreciate that you want to include us now, you understand us, but I'm not your sassy gay best friend. I'm not yeah. someone who does your hair, I'm not someone who's going to build your house. I'm someone who's going to be here and a human, and you should love me as a human. That's yeah, the next exactly. step, you yeah. know? And it's about telling the stories uh, like you ladies have decided to do, and understanding what it means to be human who is also queer. And I think that's really, that's really it. I don't know why I started this point, but the... That's okay. <laughs> it's a great point. <laughs> uh, you know, oftentimes when you have an outsider's perspective and you grow up and you find other people with that outsider's perspective, you collect with them and you say, oh, finally, I've arrived. I have people who I can feel akin to. I feel safe and I feel solid. We forget that that outsider's perspective, um, which I think it was Lakota that called it uh, the Rainbow Warriors, that outsider's perspective will heal the world. It'll change it for the better. Mm -hmm. We forget that sometimes to feel safe, we have to give it all up. We have to risk it all to come out to the world, to tell the world that we exist, that they exist with us, and together that future is beautiful. And so I guess I'm saying an entreaty to you know the queer nation that it's important to find outsiders like you, to connect with them, to feel safe, but to remember always that everyone's an outsider in some ways, mm -hmm. and that the future is about us coming together, about sharing our stories, and being human together, to make a world that we can all love and appreciate. Yeah, I mean, again, so amazing and if you know to bounce off like what you're saying that how do you build a community if you're not you know willing to be open and sharing your own experiences yeah. so it, it does it goes hand in hand and um i agree i mean i think a lot of people you know there is a lot of fear based and a lot of action and reaction and how we live our life unfortunately is based in fear um you know, no matter what, it can be for anything, but, um, you know, like unleashing that or just like 
not paying attention to it or, you know, like, you can absorb it. Like, we went, <laughs> we actually saw Elizabeth Gilbert speak um, at BAM and her new book, it's called Big Magic, and it's about, you know, take, it's, one of the chapters is called Taking a Road Trip with Fear, <laughs> and it's like, That's a great me, title. what is it, who's in the car? It's me, it's yourself. Self. Courage? Courage. Courage and, and, and fear. fear. So, fear can sit in the back seat. Fear doesn't get to talk. Fear can come along, but fear has no say in this road yeah, trip. Yeah, they can't even. And it's fear me can't and courage. The radio. And <laughs> me and courage are gonna take this road trip and do whatever the heck we want to do. And fear can come along, but has no say in whatever we do. Yeah. So, which I mean, um, I think that's great. And you know, like the more that. You do speak about whatever you want to speak about, whether it's, um, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to speak about and like building that community is definitely, you know, beneficial to everyone. Absolutely. I think that we forget as human beings that fear is a response born from biology and it means that you're alive, you're aware Mm -hmm. and that you're tuned into a moment. That's why we have that fight or flight response. It doesn't mean that you give into it. If we were in a different time, we would be dead. That uh, reminded us in the moment to act quickly, to think, to be decisive. It didn't mean to not act. Um, I firmly believe in the Buddhist teaching that inaction is action at times, but fear itself is not that. Uh, It is telling you to take an action, and that's to stop um, or to think. But realistically, biologically, it's saying speed up, figure out something, make your decision. Um, and be aware and be alive, you know? So fear is a stimulus and it means that you're awake, you know, and living. And so if we can greet it as the gift it is uh, and use it to transform its fear into integrity or into action or compassion or any of the things we want to in our life, uh, that it's a good thing. But we forget because we're locked down by layers of society years of teaching, self-talk, what we like consume uh, in media and in our own dream states. Um, so fear becomes an enemy instead of a friend. Absolutely. I mean, with that said, I mean, can I, you know, kind of pick your brain about where do you find inspiration or like, what do you turn to? Like, for me, hearing you speak, you have this very like philosophical outlook on life and larger than life. And it might be Um, the many lives that you have lived that gives you this amazing perception on life and people and relationships in general. But I mean, like what on an average day to day, like, you know, like, what do you read? Where do you find inspiration? What's your go to or like museums or something like that? I think in my old age I've become a bit of a robot and where I've separated <laughs> myself. I'm too Isn't close. That artificial intelligence. <laughs> it is. It's taken over, you know. It actually could be a danger to the future. <laughs> uh, I'm just a puppet for their cause. Um, but you know, I think I've split my it's almost just like um, social media. I've split my focus. I look at a, a vast amount of visual stimuli. I look at up and coming artists, visual interpretations of the world around us. I mean one of the one of the requirements of art being art is it must reflect the society it is created within. And if you look at a lot of art, even if it's throwaway art, even if it's pop art, even if it has deep meaning or lack of meaning, it reflects something about society. I think visually I I, I ignored all the 
academic thinking about it and I just absorb the images. I'm like, oh, wow. And then I think that that somehow in the background informs how society is being looked at in various perspectives. Um, I read a lot of articles, science blogs. Um, I read <laughs> such a dorky thing, but I read... Bill Nye's magazine. Does Absolutely. he have a magazine? I don't think he does. I used totally to subscribe sure. to Three Two One Contact yes. as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I'm like a science nerd. Yes, that's heart. fantastic. Yeah. Oh man, I loved it. Uh, that's that is fantastic. <laughs> I now want to go find my old Three Two One Contact T-shirt yeah. <laughs> and do like a Vulcan like hands up. Um, <laughs> So I actually look at PhD uh, dissertations that are like the preces of them and like the prospectus and read through them because oftentimes in three to six years, those are headlines, you know, and I'm like, what do people think about the future? Um, how are students currently like thinking about the world and what they can do to it, you know? Uh, and I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, truthfully. It's interesting with sci-fi and fantasy, we've created this world in which we can take society's problems and elevate it into some realm of fantasy so we can talk about the things that we can't talk about in a normal society. Class systems, a disparity of like um, sexuality or wage pay or a lot of different things that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's through fantasy and science fiction, we really understand it. Yeah. If you look at a lot of early feminist works, they were made through science fiction and fantasy. And a lot of the people who were male who came towards the side of feminism were through these authors writing about Amazonian societies and cultures. We accepted them readily as stories because stories aren't truths, but they are. And so it's yeah. important, again, the truths and the stories we tell about our own futures because, you know, it, li- it lays the foundation of that path forward. Um, and I think that that's where I get a lot of inspiration from and also just people. You know, you look at Malia who's doing great things about, you know, girls being educated in her society. And you look at all these young kids everywhere, tinkering, building things, becoming better than, like, us as humans think anyone should have a right to be, yeah. but they're doing it. it yeah. At all odds, us saying, we're going to cut off science education in certain areas, we're going to cut off arts education in certain areas, and they're still building, they're still dreaming. And you can't kill that human dream. You can't kill the desire to want more and to explore and to be curious. And I love that. Uh, and that's where I get my inspiration on a day-to-day basis. That's great. It's yeah. amazing. I have any other questions? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess to sort of close, um, where do you see yourself like in the next five years? Ooh. It's a good question. It's one I usually uh, like uh, say half truths during interviews, but um, <laughs> uh, so in the next five years, you know, I hope to have not only the ridiculous "How to Survive the Singularity" book out, but also a full I can't wait for this. Yes. <laughs> P.S. By the way, I'll send you a copy when we okay, get there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so in five years, I hope to be well on my way to that really intense philosophical book. Of about what it means to be human. And I think that I've learned myself, being an outsider, what that looks like to be human. Um, And sometimes I'm at odds with it, sometimes I don't understand. I kind of like go, oh, that's a reference I should have gotten, or that's an experience I don't understand at all. I've lived such a weird life. And I hope that I can take my perspective and the world's perspective and make something great from it. You know, a philosophy on humanity as an outsider and as someone who knows they're an outsider because I was acculturated by the inside. I was raised to understand its 
morals and ideals. Um, but someone who, for some reason or other, just keeps on hitting a wall and understanding basic human aspects, like pillows make you comfortable, or <laughs> like yeah. weird things, you know, that I never thought about until a few years ago. True story. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's really what I hope to be doing. Um, you know, in the next five to ten years, we're going to be in a place in time where the things we're talking about now as potentials will be realities. And it's about creating the language and the dialogue between everybody in our society and that future that allows us to arrive at it in a happy place. So I hope to be someone who can help bring that conversation forward. I'm sure you will. <laughs> I'm sure you will <laughs> Like, I have well. no doubt in my mind. Thank you so much for coming on today, Philippe. It's been really great. Um, for our listeners, is there anywhere, if they want to get like more information on you, that they can go to on the web? I, uh, I'm probably all over the place, but if you look at the Lifeboat Foundation, you know, I have a page on there which links my contact information, my LinkedIn. I have a private Facebook because I just like talking to friends, but um, you can contact me through LinkedIn, um, and I think my email might be on that site. Okay. Uh, what's like? Is it the URL for the Lifeboat site? That's such a good question. I'm yeah. pretty sure it's lifeboat.com. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was assuming as much. We'll be sure to check that and put it in our show we'll, notes. We'll plug it. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you again so much. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Um, as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, feedback, um, please email us at hello at nakedandinsideout.com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please be sure to give us a rating and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Great. All right. Thanks so much. Until next month. Yes. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. As I wait. <laughs>